Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. Celebrating pro and college football history. I'm your host, author, and oral historian, Jackson Michael. My favorite week of the football season, college and pro, coming right up this weekend, the weekend of the AFC Championship and the NFC Championship. Yes, I even prefer it to Super Bowl Sunday, which comes with a lot of things that aren't football. So this football weekend is my absolute favorite. The city of Baltimore is hosting the AFC Championship game. The city of Baltimore also hosted the very first AFC Championship game. That was played as the AFC Championship for the 1970 NFL season. That very first AFC Championship game was played at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore between the Oakland Raiders and the Baltimore Colts. The Raiders had a very young head coach named John Madden. The Colts had a first-year head coach, Don McCafferty, and their director of player personnel, who drafted much of the team, was Upton Bell. And Upton Bell is with us to share his memories of that AFC Championship game. He's going to talk about being in the scouting department when the Colts drafted John Mackey. The Colts won the 1970 AFC Championship game 27-17. to A big play in that game was a long touchdown pass to Ray Perkins. Yes, that Ray Perkins, who was the Alabama head coach right after Bear Bryant retired. Ray Perkins also an NFL head coach for the Giants and Buccaneers and also a player that Upton Bell drafted while director of player personnel for the Baltimore Colts. So Upton's going to share his stories of that day. We're also going to look at this year's AFC Championship with the Ravens hosting the Chiefs and the 49ers hosting the Lions. And with that Lions-49ers matchup, Upton's going to talk about his memories of hearing one of the great games in NFL history, the 1957 Lions-49ers Western Division Championship game in which the 49ers built a large lead at halftime and the Lions stormed back to win. They later won the NFL Championship. That is the last championship that the Lions have won. You can also hear more about that 1957 Lions at 49ers game in episode 22 of the Game Before the Money podcast. You'll hear stories from Roger Zatkoff, the late great Lions linebacker who was a starter on that 1957 team. You can also hear stories on the Game Before the Money podcast of the great Hugh McElhenney, who was a San Francisco 49ers halfback in that game. Hugh McElhenney, one of the great open field runners in NFL history. That is in episode 45 of the Game Before the Money podcast. The 49ers and Lions also played at San Francisco in the 1980 
three playoffs, I believe it was. Billy Sims era for the Lions, Joe Montana, Bill Walsh era for the 49ers. And that game was decided by one point, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Stories you won't hear anywhere else. Here's Upton Bell discussing the very first ever AFC Championship game. Upton, um, you know, first ever AFC Championship game played in Baltimore for the 1970 season. You're the director of player personnel for the Colts, and they had a rookie head coach, Don McCafferty, and the majority of the team were players you either drafted or scouted. 17 of the 40 players, and then there were only 40 players. 17 of the 40 players I drafted, and and, and by the way, for your audience, I'm not here to brag. I'm just giving the actual facts. And by the way, it's running on YouTube again. Uh, Baltimore is running it all over the place because it's been 54 years since the last championship game was there, which this weekend we'll see with Kansas City and the Ravens. But four of the players I drafted that year were in the starting lineup. Jim Bailey was one. Billy Newsom was two. Eddie Hinton was a three of the players. And the fourth I took in the first round, a running back out of TCU, you all from Texas, Michael, Norm Bulash, who scored one of the touchdowns in the game. And it, it, ironically, it was the last time that I was in Baltimore as the personnel director because about four or five months later, I was named the general manager of the Patriots. But that was one of the great days for me also Ted Hendricks, who I had drafted a couple of years before, and Mike Curtis even before that, uh, Hendricks uh, would eventually go to the Hall of Fame, and I believe that Mike Curtis belongs in there also. So it was just one of those years, one of those drafts, and the culmination, of course, is beating Oakland that game, and, and there were so many things that happened. John Madden and I became really good friends uh, just before he became the head coach. And I knew him from San Diego State because I had gone there uh, years before to to scout Fred Dreyer, who I later traded for but wouldn't come to Boston to sign. So he, he and I were friends, and so were Al Davis and myself. Even though most of the people in the NFL didn't trust Davis, I kind of liked him. You know, I, I, I kind of like outlaws. So... The game was pretty close, almost all the way to the end. And in fact, it was the Mad Bomber, Daryl LaMonica, who eventually uh, Madden replaced with George Blanda. And so there were so many ups and downs in the game, but we finally won in the end and uh, then advanced to the Super Bowl. In the Super Bowl, they call it the Blooper Bowl then. We beat Dallas the last couple of minutes. Oh, I've got Jim O'Brien's another, uh, our, our field goal kicker was another player I drafted in that draft. I know a couple of starting defensive backs, at least Charlie Stukes uh, was a yes. starter. And Jimmy Duncan. There are all sorts of people. And, and a point I want to make about drafting then versus today. Today, my God, uh, I, you know, they scout them in the spring. 
they scout them in the fall. They they have uh, uh, the the gathering in Indianapolis. Uh, then they have pro days. All of this stuff, and um, always remember what Bucko Killer and I used to discuss. He would say Upton over analysis gives you paralysis, and and that's what I see happening to the game. Then one of the other things that I learned going all the way back to my father when I was growing up around football teams, going to games and be around players, is usually your first impression is the real impression. You can you can look at the at least I could, and there's certain I think people that can. You look at a player and you you it's it's like an equation. You keep looking at them to either approve or disapprove of where they should be and how you should draft them or not. Uh, but I always found that my initial impression, quickness, the ability set up as a quarterback, the intelligence. The foot movement for offensive linemen, getting off the ball for defensive linemen. How smart are the linebackers? Can the safety see certain things? Most of the time, I could tell you within three or four weeks whether I thought he could play, how well he could play, and could he make the team. And it's funny because by sticking to my initial impression, starting with Mike Curtis, uh, when I was an, a, an assistant scout in the 1964 draft, and I'm not bragging here, we never had a bad draft. From the day 1964 till I left in 71, we never had a bad draft. Every one of our first-round draft choices made it and started on the team. Well, you were also I, working for the Colts during the 1963 draft, when uh, the Colts picked up John Mackey. What do you remember right. about that, picking up Mackey and drafting him? Well, number one, I was working for Keith Molesworth, and a lot of people don't realize, but Mackey was a running back at Syracuse. He was not a tight end. He was not a receiver. In fact, he initially didn't have great hands, but we had decided to draft him and move him to tight end because Jim Mutzler was at the end of his career, and we needed somebody. But when you could see his burst of speed, I, I mean, I still claim today that he's one of the fastest tight ends ever and maybe one of the most devastating blockers I've ever seen. But we moved him to tight end, and you could tell even the first year, this guy was going to really be one of the best. So starting then and going all the way through to Mike Curtis – Every one of, of our first-round draft choices made it and started their first year. That's really impressive. And then, you know, the Colts, they switched the AFC in 1970. That's the first year of the merger. And, and it's important to, to just remind everybody that the Colts switched from the NFL to join the AFL teams in the AFC. What was the feeling going into that season? Number one, a little-known fact, the reason that we moved over to what became the AFC, what was the AFL, was that three teams had moved over, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Baltimore, all got paid big bucks to move over. 
because nobody in the NFL wanted to move over to the AFL because they thought it was an inferior product, which turned out to be wrong, but they all got a big payoff. And the other thing was Rosenblum saw, remember, how many games we could have been the Packers of the 60s, uh, but how many games did we lose? We lost to the Packers in, in a sudden death playoff game when Don Chandler didn't make the kick. Then two years later in 1967, uh, we went uh, unbeaten till the very end with two ties and lost to the Rams the last day and knocked out of any playoff chance. That is remarkable to think that a team that lost only one game the entire season did not make the playoffs. And it was the last game of the season. I mean, we're unbeaten going into the last... I mean, in those days, I've got to tell people for... For everybody who talks about today, the game's much better. Players are much better. Uh, you know, it's a whole different thing. I'll agree with a lot of it, but I'll tell you this. When when you know that you're, it's not like we, we had wild card weekend in this past weekend, the second round of the playoffs, in the old NFL and then later in the AFC, you wouldn't make the playoffs. There's seven teams that make the playoffs, and a lot of them stink. So that's the big difference. But we moved over, and I think the initial feeling was Buffalo, how good were they? I mean, they were good in the old AFL. How good were the Patriots? Not very good. How good were the Jets outside of that one year with Joe William Amoth? Okay, pretty good. And then you had us, the Colts. And I maintained if they hadn't lost Shula because he left to fighting with Rosenblum, we might have really dominated for years. But everything fell apart after that Super Bowl team. I never thought Don McCafferty was a head coach, even though he was a rookie and, and won that year. But he won with, with Shula, a lot of Shula and my players. And I don't mean that again as a as a big ego trip for me. It was just, I thought when we lost Shula, even though he and Rosenblum never spoke to each other, I think again, I think if Shula had stayed, I would have stayed, never come to the Patriots. I was only 32. Why would I be in any hurry? Uh, if, if he had stayed and I had stayed, uh, even though there were some players getting older, and, and remember when Unitas left, Burt Jones, till he got injured, I thought was on his way to the Hall of Fame. Burt Jones but was a fantastic quarterback. The Colts, I think, would have won for years. But when Shula left, McCaffrey was a one-year one wonder. And then John Mackey, who then became a president of the Players Association, was wearing down, A, because he's spending so much time, and I, I don't blame him in the beginning, working with the Players Association. Uh, and, and just a lot of guys uh, started to age. Uninus was really... When Uninus got injured in the 68 season, we lost, blew that Super Bowl. I don't think he ever was the same again, even though, you know, he led us that year to the Super Bowl. We win, but remember, he gets injured in the early part of that game against Dallas. So, but I still say... I think if I'd stayed, 
and hopefully continued to do well drafting players. And Shula had stayed uh, and not gotten in a fight with Rosenblum. We, we would have won, I think, right through the 70s or at least part of them. And, and particularly with Burt Jones, remember Lydell Mitchell, where there were some damn good players. Oh, yeah, but, Bruce Laird in the secondary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just some, just some great talent. A lot of things, what you see then is the same thing now. Take, let's say, Buffalo last night. Buffalo had lost so many players defensively, I thought it was amazing that they were still in that game against not a great Kansas City team, but but you you, you watch two transcendent quarterbacks in Allen and Mahomes. But those teams were not great teams. But that's that's again when you look at it, what's what's the difference in in the eras and the times in in teams and, and that is especially in football and particularly with injuries, whether it was then or now, whether even more severe, injuries can end your season. They can end semi-dynasties. Football is the greatest chess game played with pads, but it's also a game where you don't stay on top very long. The Patriots thing was amazing. But when you look at it, other than that Patriot dynasty, and the Steelers back in the 70s, how many teams really have dynasties? They don't. Too many injuries, too many things that can go wrong, and particularly injuries. There was, of course, the 49ers dynasty in the yep. 80s, the Cowboys winning three out of four, but you brought up the Steelers, and that was, of course, after the Packers dynasty, but the Steelers had Chuck Noll as a head coach. Now, Going back to kind of some hypotheticals that you brought up earlier, had Shula left after the 68 Super Bowl and Chuck Knoll had been promoted, he was an assistant coach with the Colts. Do you think he would have stayed with, with Chuck Knoll? Could the Colts have had the success that, that the Steelers had had? Uh, well, number one, I don't think Knoll at that time would have been picked. Number two, Knoll did leave the year before Shula left. Knoll left in 1969. Uh, and it's funny because when we lost the Super Bowl uh, to the Jets in 68, I'm walking down after the game with Dan Rooney, Art Rooney's son. And I, I said to him, you know, I said, Dan, the Jets only scored 16 points. We lost the game offensively. Uh, I said, I, I talked to his father earlier in the year, Art Rooney, they were looking for a coach. He said, I'm going to Cleveland to interview Nick Scorch. I said, forget Nick Scorch. He was in Philadelphia. I said, Chuck Noll is the next young, great coach in the game. I told Dan Rooney that, too. And within three weeks, Noel was hired. I'm not saying I was the total person that did it, but I put the bug in the ear of the Rooneys because, of course, Art Rooney was my father's partner. I was very close to them. So they hired him, uh, I think, a month or so after we lost the Super Bowl. So he was already there. And I don't, I'm not sure that he was uh, Rosenblum's cup of tea. And, and I think Noel, who was really an intellectual, I mean, most football coaches, head coaches are really damn smart. But 
Noel was the intellectual. And I, I don't, I'm not sure he would have gotten it there because when Shula took off from Rosenblum, went to Miami, a lot of controversy. And Rosenblum wanted to prove that he could promote from within and McCafferty was a perfect choice for him because he wasn't going to give Rosenblum any shit. You know what I mean? He was Chuck Nahol would tell you off in a minute in a very intellectual way. <laughs> so so I, I don't think that would have worked even if he stayed. So you go into the 1970 AFC Championship game uh, against the Raiders. The Raiders had been in Super Bowl Two, I mean, you gotta, you gotta put it in the context of time. I mean, this is a, this is a fantastic matchup. You've got the AFL champion that had played in Super Bowl two. Yeah. Against the NFL champion who had played in Super Bowl three. Here they are facing off in the AFC championship game. Can, can you kind of talk about what that matchup was like? Oakland was really a, a great offensive team. And again, uh, I mean, Darrell LaMonica was the mad bomber, and he was going to great receivers. They had a really good running game. They, I mean, they had everything. Uh, and they had uh, young uh, John Madden, who started his Hall of Fame career. I think it was that year or the year before. And so I, I expect it to be a high-scoring game because we had a lot of people that would dictate that it would be a high-scoring game. I mean, you had... Unitas, who, even though he wasn't the same player, still had greatness in him. Until near the very end, I didn't think we were going to win the game. It was one of those games, somewhat like, but with completely different talent. It was somewhat like last night's game, where you have Buffalo and Kansas City. I always said the last team with the ball is going to win the game. I kind of felt that way with Oakland, except Oakland wasn't as big a threat as Buffalo was almost to the very end to Kansas City. And it was a fairly close game, too. The Colts, I think, got a big pass play um, that ended up being the deciding factor. It was. And, you know, it, it was a year, actually, because early in the year, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the hell out of us in the, in the first ABC Monday Night Football game televised in Baltimore. In fact, it was funny because I was assigned to sit down with uh, Don Meredith and Cosell. And a lot of people don't remember, Keith Jackson was the original play-by-play guy. That's right. And I I thought a hell of a lot better than Gifford. But Rune Arledge was the genius of ABC. He was in love with Gifford as a player. And I said, oh, my God, this will be the end of Jackson after one year. And it was. But... So all those elements on a Monday night came in and they beat the hell out of us. We were very lucky to make it through. We kind of recovered uh, midseason and and our drive to the playoffs. I didn't think we were going to make the playoffs. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. And that reminds me, I, I did get to speak with Tommy Maxwell, who you drafted quite a bit, and he was a he was a rookie on that team. He said that at one point, halfway through the season, Unitas called the players-only meeting, and that really made the difference in the season, and it kind of, kind of turned everybody's attitudes around. I knew about it because I talked to John Mackey. You know what John Mackey said? 
I don't know whether he said it in the media or not. He said, you know, all we did all the time that Shula was here is all we did is bitch about how tough he was. And he said, you know what? I really miss that. We need somebody to bitch at us. McCafferty, remember, he had the nickname Easy Rider. And I said, oh, that's the problem, Easy Rider. Nobody was on their ass. And that's what they miss. They're all happy when Shula left. But that's what was missing, Michael. What was missing is a tough guy. I want a coach that has a certain toughness. I don't want a coach that's going to be buddy-buddy with the players. I want somebody that has their respect, understands, and if you have to explain more today or be close to them, it's always fine. But in the end, I want a tough guy. Yeah, and in the end, I guess Don McCafferty wasn't that for the Colts, but he did win that first year. And, you know, after the game was over, here here's a little bit of, of something that I thought of during the course of our conversation that I'm really interested to find out. Every year they present the Lamar Hunt Trophy to the AFC champion. Now, was there the Lamar Hunt Trophy after the very first AFC championship game when you guys won? I don't remember anything like that. Was there a separate AFC trophy that, that you got? It might have been, but I don't think so. And, and, you know, by the way, that's another thing that I will put in, uh, if it's not already in the Upton Bell collection at UMass Amherst, is that here's another interesting thing. When Carol Rosenblum traded franchise with Bob Ursay, and he got the Rams and Ursay got the Colts, Rosenblum took the uh, our Super Bowl trophy with him and... The league really got pissed off and sent Ernie Acorsi, my friend, to try and get it back, which didn't happen. So the league ordered a new Super Bowl trophy, and Acorsi made sure I am the only person you are talking to in history as a front office person whose name is on the Super Bowl trophy. And the reason is because when they made up the second uh, Super Bowl trophy because Hersey was PO'd and I don't blame him. Rosenblum had taken it with him that the league ordered a new trophy which sits now in the Baltimore Museum and yours truly is on that trophy. The only time in Super Bowl history that any executive ever made it uh, on a Super Bowl trophy. Wow, that's pretty amazing. There's a hundred stories in the in the Naked City and I know all of them. so um you know you had worked with carol rosenblum for a long time you'd also worked with with chuck noel for for quite a while and and don shula and you were were quite close um after the colts won the super bowl did uh, did any of them um reach out and and say anything they they didn't do but i can tell you this because i was one of them is that Super Bowl week, we were training somewhere in Miami at one one of the colleges. And uh, secretly, myself included, uh, some of, so I think some of the players and, and, and myself individually uh, actually secretly went to see Shula. I mean, if Rosenblum ever found out or McCafferty, our heads would have come off. And, and I remember going to Shula's house a couple of days before the Super Bowl, because he and I were very close, as I was very close to Chuck Noel. And um, we talked 
uh, about him leaving, why he left, and everything else like that. It was, it was a great intimate conversation. But he said to me, you better make sure nobody ever knows you were here or, or you're going to be in trouble. I said, I've covered all my tracks. Don't worry about it. You talked about Madden uh, before, and, and you had you had met him uh, at San Diego State. I think it's worth bringing up that Don Coriel was the uh, head coach of San Diego State. That's correct. Uh, but Don Coriel, you know, everybody just saw him as a guy, as, as a genius that really you know, brought in the, the modern passing game. He and Bill Walsh made the pass as important as the run. But, uh, you know, looked at him as kind of the professor. But Corio could be tough. See, you don't have to be tough all the time. You just have to let your players know that basically I'll put up with this and that, but don't push me too far. Yeah, and talking to a lot of the Lombardi Packers, they would say the same thing. You know, Lombardi's reputation is that he was very stern, but the same players will tell you that he would tell when a player needed a kind of reassurance. And uh, that's the difference between a, a great coach who's a disciplinarian. Uh, they know when to turn it on and off. I'll tell you what Paul Hoyting told me, and that's another guy I got to know when I went to Green Bay on a scouting combine meeting. And uh, I was introduced to a good friend of mine, was Pat Pepler, who was the personnel director of the Packers. He introduced me to Horny. Horny and I went out a couple of nights uh, drinking together. And uh, he and I became really good friends. And he told me that Lombardi was the best guy he ever was around. Lombardi knew Horny was screwing around, did all of these other things. And, and Lombardi loved Horning better than any player ever had. And he knew that Horning was nothing but trouble. And by trouble, I mean men, you know, either out drinking or out with the women. I mean, he was the eternal bachelor. I said to Horning, I can't believe you finally got married. So Lombardi would tolerate the Hornings because he knew how good he was and what he could do. Uh, and I think he always looked at Horning as, you know, one of, uh, one of his sons. So all coaches are fascinating in every sport. But football coaches are really fascinating because why would you want to do something like this now 12 months a year? You, you could pay somebody like Belichick $25 million or now he wouldn't say this or you pay him $100 and they still would do what they do because it's it's a narcotic. People forget that uh, Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi, I read in Tom Landry's autobiography that they would often talk about how difficult it was to make a living as, as a pro coach. You're right, especially then. I mean, now millions of dollars are played to the same thing to players, although they're still not totally free. So I can tell you this. After I got fired by the Patriots and a, a, a fight that I got in with the owners about the right to hire and fire coaches, and uh, for for some reason, luck or whatever else it is, ended up in radio and television and was able to make a living for the last 40 or 50 years. As much success as I think I've had, I will tell you the one thing I will always miss, the locker rooms, the planes, 
the bosses, the bitching, the losing, the winning, I've never gotten over that. I, 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 I'm not talking about being a big deal or, hey, here comes the general manager or you won the Super Bowl. I miss that like I would miss my family. That's something you never get over. Never. Yeah, and the teams are kind of like a family. They are a family. With all, with all the good and bad and squabbling and bitching and moaning and everything else like that, the bad thing is when you're like the Patriots now and you're not winning anything, and that, that breeds contempt and a lot of other things. But that's what a family is. So that, I can tell you, is something for all the success or failure I might have had since then. Nothing, nothing will ever be those moments for me. All right, Optim. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a a semi-weak segue, and and not very clever. But the Chiefs are owned by the Hunt family, and the Chiefs are playing this weekend. Let's get your takes on the AFC and NFC championship games. What do you see? for the first AFC championship game played in Baltimore since your Colts team in 1970. It's a fascinating look. I, I consider Patrick Mahomes in the same category as Unitas and Brady. He is something really special. He makes a team so much better, and I don't think it's a very good Chiefs team compared to the ones that they've had in the past, even last year. But he is something else. I look at the game this way. Jackson finally won won a playoff game. But I think it still remains to be seen uh, with all of his talent, uh, whether he can win this weekend, which will then uh, put him on a different level. I think the Baltimore defense is probably the best defense in all of the playoffs. And if they're on... I see, I see the Ravens winning. Uh, but the other part of it has to be they have to be on, but I also think that Jackson has to have at least a decent day. And, and if you remember halftime last week, he wasn't playing very well. Uh, he picked up in the second half. But I just think that defense is so tough. But if there was one team, and they won't be the favorites, they can go in and win a game anywhere, because of a few key players, Kelsey, and of course, Patrick Mahomes, and a pretty good defense. Those receivers, I don't think very much of them. But boy, the way he can carry a team, it's unlike any player I've seen with maybe the exception of Brady, except this guy can run. You don't need design plays for him like you do with with Allen, uh, who... I mean, Buffalo uses him as as a, a running back. But I say I, I like the Ravens, but I wouldn't be surprised if they lost. I like the Ravens by three. You know, I'd like to bring up Pacheco, too, for, for Kansas City. I think he's a big... Great, big-time runner when it's on the line. Big part of this team. I personally, I think this game is a toss-up. The only thing I'm going to say is that I think whoever wins this game is probably going to win the Super Bowl over the NFC champion. Now, um, 
NFC Championship, Detroit at San Francisco. I think the last time they played in the playoffs, it was that one-point game when Detroit missed a field goal at the end of the game, and Detroit lost by one point in the old Silver Rush days. Um, What do you see in this San Francisco-Detroit matchup? Let me play Michael Jackson, the historian. I listened to one of the greatest comebacks in history. I was going to ask you about that game. Yes, yes. My father was commissioner. I listened to the game on the radio with him. I mean, the, 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 the 49ers were up and they were rolling. What was it? 20 to 7 or 27 to 7 at halftime? And this is the, this like, is in 1957, just to catch everybody up. 1957 at Keysar Stadium. And Divisional said, playoff game because they had tied uh, for the division crown. Correct. So I said to my father, and of course I know you, I said, you know what? can turn this game off, it's over. I remember the the bomb, what was his name? Tom Tracy? Tom the Bomb Tracy. Tom the Bomb Tracy. How's that for a memory? And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, the second half, Detroit starts to come back, and I say, well, still, too much to overcome. That was one of the greatest comebacks. People won't remember any of this today, but let's give them a little lesson. That's one of the greatest comebacks I've ever listened to or watched. It was the biggest playoff comeback until the Bills-Oilers game. Right. But this was even more dramatic. I mean, this is in the infancy of the NFL. And uh, games then were, I, I mean, they were like death struggles because it wasn't seven teams make the playoffs and you're going to be on national TV and stuff like that. This was as much about winning, no matter who was watching or listening to you. It, the rivalries were bitter then. They were, I mean, there were slugfests every week. And that that game will always stick in my memory. Just listening to it, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe it. That's how it was done way back then. You know, 1957, you know, you're listening to games on the radio. It's a beautiful thing. By then, my father had sold a lot of TV packages, but this wasn't one of them. And and so you, radio was so powerful. Radio was then, even with television and the and the packages and stuff that my father had sold, because he was really the father of modern television. But radio was so powerful. If you were a big time radio announcer, if you were Harry Wismer, who people would know today. You were power. And Bill Stern, people like that, the play-by-play radio guys, even for the teams, they were gods. One of the best color commentators on television I ever heard was Red Grange. And, wow. uh, and you and I talked last week about Al Rogatis, people like that. They really good. They really do the game. I got such a picture of what was going on Detroit and San Francisco I didn't need a TV. You're on the edge of your seat listening to this. This unbelievable comeback. And it, it may have been Lon Simmons, I'm guessing, maybe as the announcer. And Dan Fouts' dad was a radio announcer, Bob Fouts, for the 49ers. Right. Um, and famous. And famous. Everybody knew Bob Fouts. And, you know, the backstory to the 1957 divisional playoff Lions at San Francisco Bobby Lane 
was the Lions' starting quarterback throughout most of the season, but he had he had an ankle injury late in the season. Tobin Rote comes in, yep. and uh, you know, actually, now that we're talking about it, you know, uh, Detroit ends up trading Bobby Lane the next year. He says, "You're never going to win again," and um, that's. Uh, that's the football equivalent of the, of the Red Sox selling Babe Ruth. Not only that, our buddy Parker had made the deal and then quit to bring Tobin Road uh, to, to uh, Detroit and then told the players at training camp, screw you, <laughs> I had enough of you guys, and he quit. And that was their, that was their last championship. That is true. So what do you see uh, NFC-wise, Lions... 49ers. Never underestimate the 49ers' chance to croak and chokes. <laughs> uh, and look, look at what happened Saturday night. I mean, Green Bay gave them a terrific game. I thought Green Bay was going to beat them. It looked and like it. It, it, it look, looked like it. And again, isn't it ironic? The two games, even though I think Kansas City would have won in overtime, two games were decided by field goal kickers, both kickers miss what should be fairly easy field goals. So back back to San Francisco, I'm just not sold on their quarterback. I have never been. I know he went down in the end and finally, and now people are saying, well, he did take them down in the end and they were able to score and, and win the game. But I say, where 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 has he been? All the other time, I don't think he's an accurate thrower. I don't think he has a particularly strong arm. And I think in the case of San Francisco, who should win, should win. It's all based upon, you know, the coaching philosophy and the way they play the game. I know Detroit will not be the favorite, but I wouldn't underestimate them. They have a good running game. They've got a a pretty good offense. Goff has has really matured as a quarterback. Their defense is aggressive and really good. I I don't know what what the odds are in the game right now. What San Francisco favored by what six something like that? Yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not up on the uh, gambling lines. uh, Michael, they should win, but I wouldn't be surprised if they lose. I agree with you. I, I Upton, and I'm really curious. To see how Jared Goff, who has won an NFC championship game, people forget about this. And uh, he also, I don't know how much of his experience against the 49ers when he was in the Rams organization, how much that is going to uh, help him. You know, I'm excited. I'm excited about this matchup and uh, really looking forward to both games. I think I think they both have, have potential to be really exciting games. I'm definitely really interested in the Baltimore game because, to, to me, you, you've got two really great quarterbacks. Uh, one, one, to me, if if he continues and doesn't get injured, I, I really believe Mahomes will go down as maybe the greatest. Uh, I know Brady won more, and and it's a long way to catch him, and maybe they won't get back. You're never guaranteed you're going to get back to the Super Bowl. That's the other thing that I always knew, no matter the euphoria in the clubhouse after you win, is are, are you ever going to get back again? You think you're going to be back the next year. It never happens. But 
but there's something about Mahomes that is really special. Um, we'll see with Lamar Jackson uh, what what happens, but it's just it's a it's a really interesting matchup. I'm not particularly interested uh, in in the matchup of San San Francisco. Uh, maybe it's because I think they should be superior with all the talent they have. But we'll see some of the injured players that they have when they play. But again, I'm always looking for them to blow a game. So we'll see Sunday. If they're playing on all cylinders, they should win by at least 10 points. All right, Upton. Well, thanks so much. Um, let's, uh, let's try to do something before the Super Bowl and um, talk about your Super Bowl five memories and uh, your championship. That's great, Michael. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Remember, the Game Before the Money is a 501c3 nonprofit. You can donate to this oral history project by visiting thegamebeforethemoney.com and donating via PayPal. Transcriptions of some podcast episodes are located at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their automated transcription services.